Uh, so if you got a Bible, open up to John 21 tonight. This is uh, really an epilogue to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel really ends in verse 30 and 31. If you'll remember back when we started this, I kind of uh, turned to the end of the story uh, at the beginning and showed y'all what the whole end game of this whole uh, book is and, and was. Um, it's what John writes in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20, where he says, the reason I'm writing this is so that you might come to know Jesus as Lord. I, I write this, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name, eternal life in him. So John doesn't hide his agenda. Um, John, years uh, you know, into his 80s or 90s when he's writing this book, the end of his life, um, people were telling John, hey, you got to write down those stories. you got to write down those stories. And John was waiting for the right moment. He was waiting for God to give him the, the full um, story that he wanted, to t- wanted him to tell. Um, John, of course, eyewitnesses, uh, was an eyewitness, saw all of this, lived all of this, uh, went on to, to be a preacher and an elder at the church of Ephesus until the end of his life, was a caretaker of Jesus' mother Mary, was exiled to the uh, island of Patmos when Christianity was uh, made illegal in Rome. Yet Paul, uh, yet John continued to soldier on and would write this book um, as a testimony to what he had seen, what he had heard, what he had witnessed, what he had experienced, and what he believed that anybody else could experience for themselves if you just heard the story. If you just heard the good news, you would never be the same. And all these years later, John's gospel particularly is changing more lives than any other book of the Bible because of the, how the gospel is so clearly portrayed and told through his book. His, his just single verses of John have went on to change lives, right? Think about that. John 3, 16, John 14, 6, many others that we all quote, uh, single verses that John wrote, inspired by God, of course, that Jesus said himself, single verses have changed lives and have won people to God. That's incredible isn't it? Uh, But we ended last week kind of putting a bow on the story of John, but uh, we want to talk more about where we left off and the kind of the story that is is told in the post-resurrection. And this epilogue really kind of punctuates that and uh, leaves us with uh, uh, um, a really awesome personal story uh, to to, to walk away with. Back in uh, John 20, when they heard of the empty tomb and Peter and John saw it, John believed, Peter didn't. They went back home um, to the rest of the disciples and they just said, well, we don't really guess it really, you know, if he is alive, we don't really know where he's at. And um, that probably isn't true because people don't come back from the dead. Uh, So they all kind of just went home and the scripture says they just kind of shut the doors and they were afraid of the Jews, but they didn't really didn't really change them, didn't really impact them. It didn't really make a difference to them. And we talked about how, they had an excuse, even though Jesus told them the scripture said they didn't understand until later, and I think that was part of God's plan. But we know better, don't we? We know better. We can do better. And we came to the conclusion last week, we can't go back home. We must come back to life. We can't settle for normal life in this, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of that line drawn in the sand we just sing about. We must step into new life and the Spirit of God into the resurrection life we have been given. What Jesus did on the cross changed history, changed the world, more importantly to you, changed your life. We concluded, if we go back home and we don't come to the understanding that we of what life can be like as a Christian with this new perspective, a part of this new creation, if we just go back to normal, we will constantly miss what God is wanting to do what God can reveal to us amidst what may otherwise seem subpar or mundane. And you wonder, you ask, what's on the line? If we continue, 
if we continue to see life through the old lens, through the old way, and go through life the old way, we risk missing God entirely. So we know that we can't go back to life as if the resurrection of Jesus did not change everything. The way we act, the way we think, the way we believe, the way we live. We can't go back to life as if that didn't change everything because it did. Our world might not know that just as the world that didn't know that 2,000 years ago. But we know. And the 11 disciples knew too, didn't they? And for somebody like us, for people like us who've encountered Jesus and know Jesus and know better. So I know, you know, for us, even though we're just as prone to wonder as they were, but for us, we've encountered Jesus. We know Jesus. We know better. We must always be vigilant, which is an, a word that means sober, awake, cognizant, aware. We must be watchful so we don't miss what God is wanting to do on this side of the resurrection. See, we see this all throughout the Bible, this term being watchful. Uh, it sort of lost its uh, meaning to us and doesn't really register with us like it did for them. But in the ancient world, watchers, you'll, read, you'll see this word in the Old Testament a lot, watchers and watchmen were like local heroes. Um, now, we rely on cameras and alarms. Uh, you know, we rely on law enforcement and guards. Um, but that responsibility fell on the shoulders of people called watchmen or called watchers in the ancient world. It's kind of similar to what those, you know, the camera systems and security systems and, and law enforcement, but not really the same. Every city, uh, if, you had, if you were rich and had a, wealth, had a lot of property, you had a watchman as well. But every city, particularly, had a watchman or multiple watchmen that would be in watchtowers all around the city. Their job was to stay awake all night and watch. Watch for what? Anything. Watch for trouble. Watch for people coming in. Specifically, you know, uh, uh, conquering uh, armies that might come unexpectedly. Their job was to keep their eyes awake. You had to be vigilant, sober. You had to have astute senses and quick reflexes to blow that trumpet and sound the alarm and get the system uh, ready, get the people ready, signal throughout the, the, the tower and throughout the city, hey, something's coming. We got to be ready. If you wanted your stuff protected as a wealthy person or even as just a person that cared about what you have, you had to be a watchful person. Shepherds were also, ha also had to be watchful people because they watched their flock. But watchmen were very important in the ancient world and their you know, counterparts in today's world still kind of serve that same purpose. In the Old Testament, God often refers to the Old Testament prophets as watchmen because they were keeping their eyes open and their ears open to hear what God had to say to give Israel a word about their sin, about their rebellion, about their you know, uh, falling away from God or keeping them from falling away from God. But God's word and the truth about the resurrection is similar to us in that it causes or it should cause us to be alert and aware every day so that our lives can be more like Christ and that we might live in this resurrection spirit because we live in a world that is fallen and works against this. So we must be watchful. We must be sober and vigilant that we take advantage of every day the way we as Christians have the potential to. Paul would write this in Ephesians 5. I love this passage. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he alludes to that resurrection. Wake up, 
You've been resurrected. Wake up. Be watchful. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And the word wise there means circumspectly, as in you're aware of your surroundings. You are, you are noticing what is going on in that direction, in that direction. You're not letting anything catch you by surprise. You are looking carefully. You're looking clearly. You are keeping your eyes and ears open. You are wise. You are not foolish. You are making the best use of every day because the days are evil, as in we don't live in a morally neutral world. We live in a world that is dragging us the wrong way. And only by being watchful are we going to resist that tide and resist that pull. And the resurrection power of God is trying to raise us up. But we have got to be watchful and wise because we will waste a day in a heartbeat, won't we? He closes that passage like this. Do not be foolish. Understand. Be aware of what the will of the Lord is. What is God's will for you as a Christian? I can be pretty authoritative in this in generally, general terms. As a Christian, you have the resurrection spirit of God. His will for you is to open your eyes, open your ears, open your hearts, and live from that place of new life that cannot be experienced apart from what you know. You can watch the news, you can look around, and you can see there's a lot of people who do not know the resurrection good news of Jesus, and they're living like it, aren't they? But God forbid Christians live like we don't know. <laughs> but sadly, we do, don't we? More often than not. God's will is that we would walk in and step into what I call this new resurrection reality. Since Jesus' resurrection in 30 or so A.D., on that, uh, the, the 14th of Nisan, that Sunday morning changed everything. There is a new reality that only Christians can tap into and be fully aware of. John 21 is the story of the disciples coming to terms with that. It wasn't just going to be in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection. You know, they thought that that Sunday when he showed up in their house that night, you know, they thought, wow, I guess this is different. And then the next Sunday he did it again. You know why he came back? Obviously Thomas was there, but they were still locked in the room a week later. And, and I think probably, this is just my opinion, I think probably they thought, you know what, I guess he's just going to show up every once in a while for these first few days, but they figured that would kind of taper off. They figured that would just kind of, you know, he would just ascend to heaven and, you know, whatever, we don't know what's going to happen. But they didn't really think that their world had really changed, evident by this passage of Scripture more than anything else. Wherein they didn't realize or didn't think they could encounter Jesus and be used by Jesus. They thought, you know, their life was just going to be, uh, you know, they were going to figure out what their life was going to be. They didn't think it was going to be this supernatural new resurrection reality that we are going to talk about and have learned about. So on this side of John 20, uh, specifically the end of that, where all the facts have been laid out, how Jesus is undeniably God's son, our Messiah, he unquestionably can make our lives different and make a difference with our lives. John 21 is a quick story of how the disciples realize that they've stepped into a new resurrection reality. We see the 11, or seven of the 11, I don't know what the other guys were doing. We see seven of the 11 attempt to go back to normal. But here's what we're going to find out, and this is so important. What we find out is their attempt to return to normal isn't just a stagnation or the status quo. It's actually a regression. Do you hear me? Their attempt to just go about life as if nothing spectacular had happened wasn't just a stagnation. 
It wasn't just a status quo. It was a regression. So you see what's at risk? If we that know what we know just kind of act like nothing big's happened and we just kind of flatline it, eventually it's not just going to stagnate our faith. It's going to regress our faith. Put another way, their attempt to recline began to be a decline. And again, they had their reasons, but they'll find out that Jesus wasn't giving them that excuse. We don't. So we can't just put our hands behind our back and think, well, you know, hey. And let me just tell you, the equivalent of this is getting saved and thinking, well, I guess I'm just going to wait until heaven. No, God has a purpose for us, right? We're filled with new life, and God does not want us just to recline as if nothing big's happened, as if God didn't just move into our heart because he did. So we can't just recline because if we recline, we will decline. So I think you'll catch on with this theme in the first three verses. After these things, which is a pretty big statement because a lot of things just happen. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now a word on that. The Sea of Tiberias, you also see it referred to as the, uh, as the Lake, uh, Lake Gennesaret. They are just different names for the Sea of Galilee. If you look at your Bible, the maps in the back of your Bible, the Sea of Galilee is that northern body of water in, in upper northern Judea around Nazareth. Um, the different cities around the, the lake, around the sea, often they would refer to the water that was adjacent to the city as the Sea of Tiberias for the city of Tiberias, the Sea of Gennesaret for the city of Gennesaret. But when anytime you see Tiberias or Gennesaret, it's all referring to the Sea of Galilee. It was a pretty big lake, so it would be referred to from different points of view um, based on the cities that were closest to it. But it's still the Sea of Galilee, so that's important. Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Um, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others, God help those guys, John didn't even write their names down. Maybe he didn't know who they were. I don't <laughs> two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you because we don't know what else to do. We're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. So John, in retrospect, is really wanting us to pick up on a few themes here, I think that I pulled these regression and de decline ideas from. These verses are so rich. Verse 1, again, the Sea of Galilee is mentioned. Now, we have not heard about the Sea of Galilee since John 6, because Jesus' ministry was all in the southern area of Israel uh, since then. And really, he had moved into the area of Judea as early as John 5. The last story in John, so we're staying with John's gospel, the last story in John's gospel that centered around Galilee was way back in John 2 at the wedding in Cana. So it's been a long time since we've been in Galilee in John's gospel. So the point is, things are moving backwards. It's not like they were in Galilee sharing the gospel. They were just hanging out. And verse 2 tells us it wasn't all of they. It was seven of them. So we see part of this moving backward had dispersed their group. Their group had thinned out. They were disunified. They were falling apart. And then verse 3 is big, really big. 
Peter speaks and the others fall in line because Peter was their natural leader. And even though they weren't doing anything spiritual, he still had that command over them. And that's important. If you have that sort of authority or that sort of uh, you know, um, influence, it matters that we use it wisely. Peter, as a leader, spoke, hey guys, I don't, you know, we can hang out here. You know, y'all aren't even, some of y'all aren't even front here. I don't know why y'all follow me back home. You know what? I'm going fishing, so y'all just hang out and don't bother my mom too much. Or, you know, Peter, yeah, well, he was married, but we don't really know how that went. But Peter says, hey guys, y'all just stay here. I'm going out fishing. And they're like, well, we're coming with you. Um, so I don't know if he wanted to be their leader. I don't know if he wanted them there with him, but that's just kind of how it kind of worked out. But here's something more we've got to understand. In the immediate aftermath of the resurrection, the disciples were wanted men. We know this, but maybe just to, to kind of clarify how they became wanted men. The soldiers went to the council when they found out the body was missing. Remember, they fell over as dead men, but they didn't die. They got back up and thought, well, this isn't good. They went to the council, the Sanhedrin, the priests, and the elders, and the religious leaders. They didn't go back to the Roman leaders, Pilate, because they knew they would be killed. So they went to the religious leaders and they say, y'all got to bail us out because if Pilate finds out that we let Jesus' body vanish or whatever's going on and Pilate's already been messed up because of their talk, we don't know what's going to happen to us. So we got to work out a deal. So the religious religious leaders had a plan. Tell people his disciples came at night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they come up with a lie. So they tell the soldiers, hey, y'all just tell this story. Well, we were kind of asleep, but we saw Peter and John, and we're pretty sure they carried his body out, and we'll sign off on this. We'll tell Pilate so he won't kill you, and we think this will be uh, satisfying to him. And the next part, they took the money and the bribe, and they did as they were directed, and this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now, Matthew's writing this pretty, pretty soon after. That's why he says to this day. So... You see that the disciples were wanted men. Now, Jesus didn't give them a reason, didn't give them an excuse because of this. He said, hey, y'all got to be bold and be ready because they're going to come after you like they came after me. We learned that this morning, didn't we? Now, they didn't need to hear this to be afraid, of course. We saw them in the last chapter of the night of the resurrection, hidden and locked up in a room. But within a week or so, they fled down the hill back home to Galilee where it all started because they were scared. But what was Jesus' command for the disciples? Even before his death, he'd already told them, when I die and when I rise again, stay in the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to prepare y'all for something that's going to happen a few weeks from now when the big festival of Pentecost comes. Y'all are going to be ready to take the town by storm. Y'all stay in the, in the upper room. I'm going to visit with you periodically. We're going to get y'all ready. The Spirit of God's going to fall, and it's going to be game on. Get ready for the church's incline. Don't recline. Definitely don't decline. Y'all need to be in one accord. But here we find seven of them up north hanging out. And adding to the irony, and of course, this is just so poetic, what do the disciples do as they are trying to figure out what to do, as they're trying to pick up the pieces? No one will hire them because they're wanted men. But also, remember, Peter and James and Andrew and John, they walked away from their business from their dads. And they followed this guy who had been exiled from his synagogue, who the last time he was in his synagogue, he got up in front of the whole building and said, I'm, the, I'm God, and they tried to stone him. So Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and those that were with them, had sullied their reputation. No one wanted to be anywhere near them because they were ashamed that they had followed this deranged 
carpenter who had this God complex that was murdered for his heretical things he said. That's, the, that's how Jesus had been interpreted because at this point, nobody's heard the resurrection story yet except for the men that went up there and didn't tell it. And they were scared to tell it because they didn't think nobody would believe them because they didn't really know if they believed all of it or not yet. So you see what's going on? They were ashamed of themselves. People were ashamed of them. No one wanted to talk to them because they were an embarrassment for following this man that was just crucified who they thought had lied to everybody. And they aren't painting the hills red with the resurrection story. They're just hiding out. So what do they resort to doing? Fishing. Because you've got to pick up the pieces and start somewhere, don't you? Now, the story we're about to read is very similar to the story you can read in Luke 5, where Jesus has a, preaches a sermon by the seashore, Peter and, jo- Peter and Andrew working for their dad, James John working for their dad. They're out, they've been out all night. They can't catch anything. Jesus says, well, hey, can I use your boat to preach this sermon? After he preaches the sermon, uh, Peter, he says, hey, you know, y'all didn't catch any fish last night. And Peter says, no, we didn't. He says, well, hey, I think you should go back out there and try again. And Peter looks at him and says, you're a carpenter. You're a preacher. You can't fish. But because Peter's heart was kind of being moved and, and he felt something was going on, he thought, well, I guess, you know, you know, you've really preached some good sermons lately. You healed my mother-in-law, so I guess I need to go out here and try to fish at your word. So he goes out, and they bring in that boat full of fish that starts to sink the boat. And Peter, James, John, Andrew humble themselves before Jesus, knowing he was starting this movement. He was this rabbi that was calling disciples. When Jesus says, hey, I want y'all to join my team, they forsake their nets immediately, tell their dads goodbye, and say, hey, we're following Jesus. And now here they are back on the boat, back on the waters. And and, and again, there's nothing wrong with taking a day off and going fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing. But what they were doing was trying to default back to their comfort zone where it all had started. Peter, James, John were old pros. Well, not really pros. (laughs) They weren't really doing that well at fishing, were they? But the other four with them were never known as fishermen, so I guess this is like, you know, they were just playing favorites and hiring their buddies because, hey, you know, they didn't have anywhere else for them to go. The real punchline of all of this that informs how we should interpret it is the last part of verse 3, though. They caught nothing. Of course they didn't, right? They caught nothing. And that's what John really wants us to hear very clearly. And I, I want to make this statement. I think this is what John wants us to think. So what profit is there for us who've encountered Jesus and know Jesus? What profit is it for us if we return to normal and ignore our new reality? None whatsoever. Right? For Christians and believers, when there is no profit, when there is no gain, when there is no growth, the result isn't just a recline or stagnation. The result is regression. The result is decline. You you see, when it comes to our spiritual lives, there's no neutral zone. We never arrive spiritually. We are either moving forward in the Spirit, growing in the Spirit, or we are being pulled backwards by the flesh. We're going in one of two directions. There's no standing still. That's what Jesus was referring to when he warned the disciples as they were sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was arrested. He told them, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh 
is weak. Your flesh is weak. But that's the good news. In our new resurrection reality, our flesh, our sin's been forgiven, disarmed. The Spirit of God has raised us up. He is more than willing. He is moving, as Jeremiah said. God's mercies are new every day. His opportunities for us are renewed every day. Our response is required, yes, but the opportunities are free and persistent in this new resurrection reality, as in God never stops trying to nudge us along the right way. So look at how the disciples are given an opportunity to correct their course, verse 4. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know what, that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. We've heard this movie. We've watched this movie before, haven't we? John and James and Peter and Andrew, they've lived it. Jesus, of course, calling their minds back to the way they initially met him on the same sea, in the same boats, but they weren't the same people. Yet they were trying to do the same stuff. Jesus' fishing trick, his fishing tip, at least worked on John. John knew, verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. John knew. He's like, hey, I remember this movie. I remember watching this. I remember living this. That's Jesus. Do I think there's any significance to the right side of the boat request, you know, as suggest this other side? I don't really think so because I think they had been out all night. They had probably tried every side, every angle, had turned the boat around upside down, went under the water. They had done everything they could to try to find fish. It was an embarrassment for them to row back up to shore without anything. I think this was a reminder to them about what first got their attention all those years before. Peter initially was won over because Jesus' words proved to make the difference in his life. Way back, Peter had fished all night, caught no fish. Jesus showed mastery over the lake, over his success, to which Peter bowed in awe, and Jesus recruited him to fish for something greater. And that's the whole goal of this repeated experience, to remind Peter of his calling. Look at the rest of verse 7. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. He was fishing, and you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on ancient fishing habits, but apparently he was undressed. And plunge into the sea. And they're like, what's he up to? The others, disciples, came, to the, came in with the little boat, for they were not far from the land, uh, 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. Peter was uncovered for his work. And this is so, so rich. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's nakedness is mentioned to speak about their shame. They were naked and ashamed. They covered themselves. Think about... Peter here, at the sight of Jesus, is overcome with shame, and he hides himself. But didn't Jesus' death conquer shame? Didn't Jesus' death forgive sin and give us boldness in the sight of God? And yet here is Peter regressing. It shows what happens when we stand still and fall back. Perhaps Peter's regression started before the cross when he was boasting and sleeping and swinging, when he was hiding and lying and denying. Perhaps he hadn't ever truly understood or received what God was offering through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what is so important here. As Peter covers himself, hides himself 
and shame from Jesus. But listen, y'all, this isn't what's supposed to happen on this side of the resurrection. Adam and Eve hid themselves in nakedness before, right? But the cross reversed all that. We're supposed to be able to be confident in the sight of God because shame has been removed. Yet here is Peter still in his shame. So I don't think this is about Jesus trying to bring shame to Peter. This is about Jesus trying to release Peter from that shame. But it still required a very personal conversation with Peter and Jesus. As much as Peter tried to avoid Jesus, that's what shame does, doesn't it? It separates us from God. Just like Adam hid, Peter tries to hide from Jesus while the rest of them go on and enjoy a breakfast that Jesus cooks for them. He says, hey, bring me some fish and we're going to cook up a storm. Peter uh, drags the net up, but then Jesus invites him to come and eat with him. He invites him into fellowship with him and Peter goes and kind of sits over on his own. And verse 15 is important. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, isn't that what you went by when we met? I, t- I called you Peter after that whole Caesarea Philippi thing, but your, your name's Simon, isn't it? You want to go back to the old ways, hey, let's call you by your name. Simon, son of Jonah, the fisherman. Do you love me more than these? We're very blessed people, aren't we? Sometimes the blessings can get so good, the success we find is so good, all of it from God, of course. But sometimes we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. What do we love the most? You see, here Peter had tried to avoid Jesus. That's what shame did. And Peter, approached by Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, I gave you what you wanted. I gave you all these fish. I truly want you to be happy, and I hate to see you so defeated and discouraged. But it was almost like this blessing that God gave Peter was a test. And Jesus says, Peter, did that complete you? Did that make you feel complete? Is this what you want? I gave it to you. Did this, does this compete with the peace that you found in me all these years? Could it be that many of our own blessings are like this? I think so. We often think if we can just get this or get that, we'll be happy. But we usually find nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. We always find nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. Peter, of course, knows what Jesus is getting at, getting at because he doesn't feel at home. He knows he's betraying his true self, even enjoying all of these fish and knowing that he received 153 fish. He counted all of them because he knew all of those fish would be worth money to him. But Peter, as he counts them and prices them, he knows this is not what I'm made for anymore. And he says to the the Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my lambs. You know what I've called you to do, to be a shepherd, to be a watcher for your people, to build my church. He says a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. He says, okay, tend to my sheep. You're missing four of them. They're following you. He said the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because just as he denied him three times, he asked him this question three times. And he says, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. He goes back and forth nudging Peter for this role he's destined for. 
But here's Peter having to make this decision and how we have to make this same decision. What do we love more? Where can we be guaranteed to find what we value the most? What is most profitable, profitable for our souls? You know, the older we get, the more seasoned we are, we realize what is more important, even as kids, though, as caught up and fixated on material things as kids can be. We learn early on there's something more important, isn't there? That which cannot be quantified or measured or counted, that which is personal and truly completes and blesses our heart. Verse 17 is so powerful. If we'd only go to God with the same confidence that Peter does to Jesus. Jesus, you know all things. You know what completes me. And I know I'm betraying myself. I know I'm not where I should be. You see, sometimes we are so conflicted about what we want the most amidst the competition for our souls and our affection. We must confide in God's word and God's guidance lest we get too far away. Here Peter is trying to decide, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And Jesus gives him what he wants. He gives him more than he could even you know, live off of for weeks and weeks at a time. And he says, Peter, is this what you want? Or are you still the Peter I know? Made for more. See, when you're conflicted, and you're so blessed, and you're so fortunate, and you look around the room and you think, I couldn't want anything else... You've got to decide, you've got to realize as conflicted about what you want and amidst the competition for your soul, you've got to confide in God's word so you get directed in the right way. See, we can go to God and we can trust in him and know that he won't lead us astray. He won't leave our nets empty. He will fill them beyond our assumed capacity. And I'm not referring to the 153 fish that Jesus gave Peter. I'm referring to the greater calling he had on his life. What he gives us is much better and much more satisfying. But you better believe he will interfere if we settle for less. And thank God for that, right? Thank God he'll let us spin in our wheels to make sure we don't start driving in the wrong direction. We got one more lesson in John next time as we kind of break down Peter and Jesus' closing conversation that would ultimately lead Peter and John in an incredible direction. That would change the world. And the next time we see Peter and John together, they're not counting fish, but their nets are full as they see people coming to Jesus by the thousands when they realize what they were really made for. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you for filling our nets. Of course, you bless us in physical and literal ways, and we're thankful. But God, you bless us in ways this world cannot give to us. You bless us in ways that cannot be measured or quantified or counted. You bless us and fill our hearts with things that we cannot buy or we cannot find in people or things of this world. You bless us by the identity you've given us in Christ and by the person you've made us through your resurrection. God, forgive us for settling for less because we do. But thank you for preserving this story of one of your most important people thank you for preserving the story of Peter and John and the rest as they considered what was going to be their future and thank you for intervening and bringing Peter out of that shame and putting him back on that solid ground 
Thank you for reminding him and reminding us that we can't go backwards. We gotta move forwards because the new life you've given us is just begging for so much more than this world will do for us. So thank you, Father. Give us guidance, but most of all, let us know that your love is greater than anything else that tempts us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.